Good morning, Cherrydale family and friends. I love that response. Thank you. Would you join me in prayer as we uh, prepare our hearts to hear God's word? Thank you, Lord. It's just so delightful to be with your people. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us, illuminate our mind to understand this powerful passage. May it change us at the core for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Today is the last sermon I'll preach at Cherrydale as a resident of Arlington County because on June the 14th, Maybell and I will move to Waco, Texas to be near our family, our son Joshua, our wonderful best daughter-in-law in the universe, Naomi, and our best granddaughter in the universe, Elise Catherine King. And because this is my last Sunday as one of the pastors at Cherrydale for 39 years, I brought with me one of my, I brought with, wait, uh, come on now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Stop! <laughs> I love you back. <laughs> love you. So I brought with me one of my treasures. And you would think, that's your treasure? Yes. It's a worn, faded briefcase. The handles are held together by duct tape. It's got worn places here, and it still works perfectly. And you're thinking, well, that was nice. Why would you have that as your treasure? And I'll tell you why. Because I have two really close friends, longtime members of Cherrydale, Ralph James and Dave Coffey, who gave me that over two decades ago on my birthday. And when I think of those two men, I can honestly say they have consistently lived out the theme of our text today. Living worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ralph, I conducted his funeral four years ago right here. Ironically, he died on my birthday. Uh, and he was 97. Guess what his life verse was? Philippians 1.21. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And when he was in his early 70s, his sweetheart Martha passed away, a long journey of suffering. And during those days, I was one of the few people she would let come into that back bedroom with her and Ralph. And on her deathbed, Ralph and Martha said, we're adopting you as our son. From that day forward, I called him Dad. A few months after Martha died, he came to me and he said, Son, you have a free staff member for the rest of my life. Put me to work. I said, I'm glad you asked. So, <laughs> no, he, he ran our tape ministry, worked in our radio ministry. His fingerprints are all over this facility. He was the, pro the manager of expanding our facility. 
Dave Coffey, still alive. I'm not going to tell you he's 80 years old, so don't ask me. <laughs> in 1987, uh, in the old facility on, on Dave's birthday on an Easter Sunday, I gave an invitation, and here he comes. He came to Christ that Sunday, never looked back. Faithful, faithful member of Cherrydale. He and Ralph, best friends all over the facility. He still oversees the team that counts the money that you give on Sunday mornings. 27 years ago when we got our house, Ralph and Dave teamed up and they said, son, it's not optional. We're going to gut that place and put it back together. And we're going to train you in the process. So that old briefcase will always stick with me for two reasons. Reason number one, when I look at it, I remember two dear brothers who mentored me and taught me by their example how to walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. And number two, it represents my attempts to walk worthy of the gospel of Christ because that bag has come with me all over the world, all over the nation, and in countless meetings here at Cherrydale, and it's carried my Bible, my sermon notes, counseling notes, ministry plans, all my tools that I use to try to walk worthy of the gospel. So like that old briefcase, Ralph and Dave are not flashy up front. They've never read, led a discipleship group but I want to tell you something. Their faithfulness has put steel in the bones of this church family. It's like glue because they've walked worthy of the gospel. And every one of us are called to do the same thing. And that's what our text is about. Philippians 1, 27 to 30. You may not realize, if you go through Philippians, the first commandment in the book is verse 27. First command. And the theme of these four verses is crystal clear. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Say that with me. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now that's not a suggestion. It's a commandment from an apostle in the word of God. And this command is bookended by two things that help you see what it means to walk worthy. On one end, right before it, is the Apostle Paul, who is an example of walking worthy. And the key verse is Ralph James's favorite verse, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And then he says, and if I live, here's what I'm going to do, Philippians, my energies will be put toward your advancement and joy in the faith. He's all about joining God's story. His story is linked to God's. That's what it means to walk worthy. Right after this text is that famous passage about Jesus who left perfect bliss with the Father and the Holy Spirit and entered our story and suffered a horrible death and took our hell for us and rose again so that we could get in and we are to have his attitude. My life is about giving it away 
and joining God in his story. So you begin to see what it means to walk worthy. You no longer live for yourself. It's not about you. It's about him. And it's about giving your life away and being a servant to make sure the gospel advances through your influence. In other words, walking worthy means that you burn into your mind that my story is a part of a bigger story. It's God's story. And we are made worthy only by the work of Jesus Christ. And we show his worth by our attitude and how we live. So practically, very practically, when this good news, the gospel, is in your thinking and in center in your life, here's what it'll do to you. It'll keep you from thinking too much about yourself because it's not about you. It's about his story. And folks, listen to me. If we are those kinds of people, you'll make a difference in this world because our society needs a correction. We're big me, little you people. Ego, cancel culture, not the gospel. That drives you out, that drives that out of you. On the other hand, the gospel will keep you from thinking too little of yourself. And because you'll see, wait a minute, I'm a part of God's story. I'm on the team. He chose me to make a difference in this world. And that corrects our society because we're full of people who have a victim mindset. Poor me, full of anger and rage. The gospel will drive that right out of you. It also does this. When the gospel is central, Christ is on the throne of your life. You realize that it brings a responsibility right to your front door every day. You are responsible to live worthy of the gospel. You have a high and holy purpose. You stay motivated. If at the core of your being, you can honestly say, for me to find life, it's Christ. And let me tell you what you've got if you've got that. You've got a purpose nobody can ever take away from you, ever. You could lose everything, be thrown in a dungeon, just like Paul. I still got the same purpose right here. I'll live for Christ. You can't get my purpose and take it away from me. In addition to that, you begin to change your thinking. You're no longer a terminal thinker which means you just have a series of events that go through in your life, but nothing connects them all. There's no overarching story. And you become a relational thinker. Every single thing in your life matters. It relates to the overall mission. Christ is my life. It changes you at the core. Walking worthy, then, means having an intimate ongoing love relationship with a living God made through Christ 
and you allow the gospel every day to shape every key part of your life. So here's what you become. You're like prongs holding up the diamond gospel. And when people see you, they get a glimpse of him. Can you get a better purpose than that? It shapes everything. So that is what the commandment is. Walk worthy. But if you're like me, I always ask, why BH? Yeah, but how? How? And embedded in this text, he tells us how. And Pastor Tom makes fun of me with my three C's, so here I go again. <laughs> I'm dedicating this to Tom. The three C's of how to walk worthy, three habits, three evidences, three things that feed walking worthy of the gospel of, the, of Christ. And the first C is community. Say that with me, community. Community united around the gospel of Christ. Look at what he says. <clears throat> Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. The you are plurals. Paul is a southerner. It means y'all. He's talking to a church, not just to an individual. It's community. And notice he says one mind, one spirit striving together. So I got a question for you. How can you possibly obey that if you're not committed to a local church? You can't. You can't. And here's where we have a disconnect in our culture. We believe a lie. And the lie is, as a Christian, I don't need the church. Well, yes, you do. So I got a question for you. I ask myself this often. It slaps me to reality. Uh, excuse me, Steve. What is it that Jesus died for? What is it that he lives in? What is it that he never stops praying for? What is he perfecting? What does he work through? What's he coming back for? What will he spend eternity delighting in? It's his church. You don't love what he loves? Then if you don't, you're not walking worthy. Quit decapitating Christ. How could I decapitate Christ? I act as if he's just a head. He comes with a body. When you get Jesus, you get his family. And that is part of walking worthy. I make a specific, intentional commitment to a local church, warts and all, because that's the bride of Christ. And I speak well of it. And I intercede for it. And I love it because Jesus loves it. And you know what that'll do to you? If you're in a gospel-centered church and you're a part of the solution, you're not a critic, you help, it will keep you from thinking too much of yourself. I've experienced that for many, many years as a pastor. In Portland, Oregon, in my first church, right out of seminary, at the time, uh, the church growth movement was all over the nation. And I bought it hook, line, and sinker 
and I didn't realize it, but the idol of my heart was growing the church. I built my identity on an attendance chart, and it was driving me. So I gathered my leaders, and I gave them all these strategies of, we got to do this and that, and here's how we're going to grow. And afterwards, one of the godly brothers pulled me aside privately and read to me, Matthew 22, 37 to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbors yourself. On those two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And he simply asked me, Pastor, it looks like our purpose is not growth. It's loving God and people. And the growth is the result of that. And I'm telling you, that went, <laughs> it changed my life. I got that because I needed to quit living for me and I needed to be in a body that would tell me that. You need that too. Second, it'll keep you from thinking too little of yourself. A lot of you folks have tough backgrounds, living in hard circumstances, and you feel about that big, and you feel like a victim. My sweet Maybelle grew up in an abusive home, and she, to this day and then, refused to see herself as a victim. Do you know why? Because she was committed to a gospel-centered church. And when she was a teenager, they memorized Colossians 3. And they taught her over and over, you're no victim. You're a child of the king. You're the king's daughter. You're bought with his blood. He's got your back. You have a beautiful future. And it changed her from thinking too little of herself to see who she is in Jesus Christ. Commitment to a community, a serious commitment where you grow is how you walk worthy. That's where it starts. So I want to appeal to you. If you're just coming to Cherrydale and you drop in and drop out, but you have no intention to commit to the body, I'm telling you from God's word, that's not walking worthy. Commit for your own sake, for the gospel's sake, and keep being the healthy church that you are. That's leading to the second C. It's the word conviction. Say that with me. Conviction. If you're committed to a local church that's gospel-centered and it keeps you from thinking too much of yourself, too little of yourself, and a whole lot about Jesus, you don't want that just to be a concept. Concepts won't change you. You want it to be a conviction. Do you know the difference? A concept is, I appreciate it, it's beautiful, it's nice, but it doesn't, it doesn't change me. A conviction you'll die for. That's what I live for. And when you're habitually in the church that's gospel-centered, conviction over and over fed into your soul so that we're people of conviction. Did you notice how the verse reads? Standing firm. Did you see the order? 
I come and see you and remain absent. I hear you're standing firm. Standing on what? Convictions. In one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Conviction and standing firm comes first. Then you've got something to strive for. And you take the conviction away, what are you striving for? So conviction about that you're a part of God's story. And it's not about you, it's about Him. And He gives purpose to your life. So ask yourself with me this question. Do you lack conviction that you've been bought with the blood of Christ? You are not your own. You were saved to bring glory to God. He's calling you. Live worthy of that calling. Is that your life conviction? And if it isn't, it could be because you're not committed to his body. And you're not in an environment that feeds that conviction. Maybe something else feeding wrong convictions. This is a call to repent. Let me give you a couple of tips about conviction and building it. Number one, you've got to daily feed your convictions. You're in a world that will fight against biblical gospel-centered convictions with a vengeance. Feed your conviction on the Word of God and feed it with other believers. Number two, you're going to face moments of crisis and fear and confusion it's like an alarm going off on your dashboard. Check your conviction. Check your conviction. Feed it. Feed it. Those are the times when you need to remind yourself intentionally, I'm part of a bigger story. My life matters in Christ. In early May, Maybell and I went to Waco, Texas because our precious granddaughter was going to be in a Shakespeare play, and grandparents don't miss things like that. And we were so refreshed because I saw firsthand what I'm talking about. My son Joshua and his wife Naomi and their daughter Elise are in a gospel-centered community. They're committed. Elise is in a Christian school. Joshua's got good fellow Christians at Baylor University. And I saw the conviction in action. Joshua, when... He was a young English professor at Baylor University, became obsessed with, will I make tenure? Am I writing enough articles? What are the student evaluations like? And it was driving him and turning him selfish, inward. And then one day he came across, because he's in this community, Joseph Lightfoot's prayer. Joseph Lightfoot was a 19th century Cambridge New Testament professor turned bishop of Durham. And every single day he prayed this prayer before he ever taught and led. And Joshua shared, I've memorized that prayer. And before I ever teach, every day I get on my knees and this is what I pray. And it's replaced nervousness and fear with strong, confident conviction. And now he's a tenured, seasoned professor. I bet you want to hear the prayer, don't you? Okay, I'm glad you asked. Here it is. Since it has pleased you, O Lord, that I should be called to take my part in the teaching of this college, 
grant that I may not assume the same lightly or without due sense of the importance of my trust, but considering it a stewardship for which I am accountable to you, may I faithfully fulfill the same to your honor and your glory. Grant, O Lord, that neither by word or deed I may not weaken the faith or slacken the practice of those committed to my charge, but rather grant to me such measure of your Holy Spirit that my duties may be discharged to your honor and glory and to the welfare of both the teacher and the taught. Grant this, O Lord, through your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Praise God that he's a man of conviction that came from being committed to a local church and a community of believers, and he intentionally feeds it. But wait, there's more. On that same visit, our granddaughter, who's going to be in Shakespeare play that evening, we're sitting around. Joshua just shared with us what he prayed every day, and sweet Elise pulled out one of her favorite books called Every Moment Holy by Douglas McKelvey. And then she read to us what's become very special to her as an actor, a liturgy before taking the stage. And then she read this to us as a prayer. I lost it. If I lose it during this, y'all pray for me. All right. I know you want to hear this, right? Okay, here, here's what she read. What have I to offer here that might sustain the souls of others? Alone, I have little more to show beneath this scrutiny of lights than my own pride and insecurity, my craving for praise, and my fear of rejection. Rather, let me offer something greater in this place, O Christ. As I step onto the stage, meet me amidst the wreckage of my ego and my woundedness, and through me, give what I alone cannot. I offer you all that I have, my talents, my training, the years spent honing, crafting, and creating my passions, my personality, my history, my many sacrifices I and others have made in order for me to be here. I give you even my brokenness, of which I am also a steward. I offer now these incomplete, insufficient provisions, remembering how you in your days among us, twice blessed in adequate offerings, fashioned them into miraculous feasts that would sustain crowds in the hardened journeys. I pray that you would likewise receive, bless, and multiply my own meager gifts, Jesus, for the benefit of all who have gathered here. Let these humble elements in your hands become a true nourishment for those who hunger for you. And for those who have not yet wakened to this deep hunger, let my brief service to them be like the opening of a window with which the breezes of a far country might blow, stirring eternal longings to life. Take this tiny heap of my talents, my brokenness alike, this jumble of what is best and worst in me, 
and meld it into the greater work of your spirit using every facet as you will so that even as sunlight nourishing through a cracked prism, your grace might somehow be revealed upon this stage in whatever glorified and particular patterns you've fashioned me to display. But it gets better. She went to the play and took this to her director and said, could you share it with everybody? And he did. And you should have seen how they performed and how they honored each other. And you've got a community building conviction. The story's about him. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think too lowly. Live worthy of the gospel. Now, I know what you're thinking. So get on to the third C. <laughs> well, I will, but in a unique way. So I got to introduce this third C. Because Roger Tanius is going to present it, because I asked him to. And Roger's been an intern at Cherrydale for the last year with me, and I've had dozens of interns in 39 years. And Roger, I can honestly say, lives out these three. When he joined our church, immediately plugged in on the welcome team, on a teaching team, teaching at the men's retreat, ministering to children, dozens of long meetings, just being a servant, loving and building up the body. And he's a man of conviction. And you cut him, he'll bleed Bible verses. Ask him about the Trinity, and he lights up like a Christmas tree. And courage. He's landed a job. We prayed him into that one. He's courageously stepping out of his comfort zone, moving to Fair, Fairfield, Connecticut, to be on a team, a box church. Their vision is to join with other churches and plant 4,000 new churches in New England. Love to have that happen. He's going to be a campus pastor on the one in Fairfield, Connecticut. So would you give a warm welcome to Roger Tanius? Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, first of all, I want to say that I am overwhelmingly honored and humbled to be sharing this pulpit with my mentor, brother, and pastor, uh, Steve King. Let's give it up for Pastor Steve King. You know, when, when Steve asked me to um, co-preach with him, knowing that this would be his last message here at Cherrydale after nearly four decades of ministry, the first thing I told him is, uh, brother, you don't need to do that. Uh, this is your last message. And uh, Steve said, no, that's what I want to do. And when your mentor says that's what you want to do, you pop to attention, you salute, and you say, Roger that, and you do it. <laughs> so hence, I'm here. Um, you know, as many of you know, I'm a graduate of West Point, was an Army officer for about five years in the artillery and in three years in the National Guard as a chaplain, and then spent some time in the private sector. And in that time, I've really become a student of leadership. You know, what's the best leadership style? What's the most effective leadership style? And I've read so many books, 
And uh, when you're at West Point, when you think about leadership, you think of George Patton. You think of General Douglas MacArthur, or my favorite, William Wallace in Braveheart. <laughs> Put the face paint on your face, run out into the field and yell, freedom! But as you, as you look at those characters, and as I look at myself, I realize that I'm not as charismatic as they are, I'm not as confident as they are, and I'm not as type A as they are. And that causes a struggle in my soul. And then Pastor Steve has taught me a new type of leadership style. And I pray that you guys, my only prayer request is that when I'm going to tell you that you would pray that this would mark my ministry in Connecticut. Pastor Steve has taught me servant leadership. Pastor Steve has taught me that to be a leader, unlike what I thought, it's not about being the most confident person in the room or the loudest person in the room. It's about being the person who comes down to someone's level and washes their feet. It's about being a person who will love the person in front of you, not just as a task, but as a lifestyle. And then you naturally become a leader. And you know what's amazing about that? I can do that. I can do that. So I'm eternally thankful for Pastor Steve for teaching this West Point grad servant leadership. And uh, I pray that you guys will pray that I will always remember that, that that will mark the ministry that I do in Connecticut is servant leadership. That's, that's what I pray for. If you're going to remember anything, just, you know, let's pray for this guy, Roger, that he would be a servant leader. Well, our task this morning is to look at the last three verses in this passage, and I want to title it, Courage in Suffering. Courage in Suffering. Let me read the passage for us. Here are the words of the Apostle Paul to the Philippian church. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Pray with me one more time. God, thank you so much for your word, mighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Thank you for your word. And thank you for your spirit that makes your word come alive. And when your word comes alive, your word renews our mind. And as we are renewed, we are drawn to your Son. Thank you, Lord, for this process that you do amongst your people. Do it now, God. Enlighten our minds through your word so that we can have more intimacy with you. In Jesus' name, and everyone say, Amen. Amen. Well, as Steve mentioned, as, and as Pastor Matt preached last week, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 is the linchpin of this entire chapter. It, it's, it's the most important um, piece. It really makes the framework of this entire chapter, where Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we really need to understand what Paul is saying here, because once we understand, it's like dominoes. The whole rest of the chapter just falls into place. So what does Paul mean by to live is Christ? To live is Christ. To live is Christ and to die is gain. What does Paul mean by that? 
Now, some have interpreted this as two distinct experiences, right? As if in the living part is Christ and to die is gain. But John Calvin, in his commentaries, doesn't say that. Calvin says that Christ is the subject of both clauses. So whether we're facing intense persecution and chronic pain and situations in our life, if we are in Christ, we have joy, delight, and peace with God. And whether we're facing an impending death, and even in death, if we're in Christ, we have joy, peace, and delight with God. So we have joy, peace, and delight with God in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And there's no better experience than that. I also find it interesting that everyone everywhere is talking about, uh, here we go, how to live your best life. All right, if you go to Barnes and Nobles, there's no shortage of books on how to live your best life. Did you hear what Paul is saying here? For me to live is Christ. The epitome of life is not your 401k, it's not how many places you've been, it's not how big your bucket list is, it's not how many things you've checked on your bucket list. Your best life is Christ. The epitome of life, the best life that you can live is Christ. Walking in daily intimacy with the triune God in and through the person of Jesus Christ is your best life. There is nothing better than knowing you have intimacy with God in the person of Jesus Christ. Can you think of better news than the fact that you're walking in intimacy with the triune God? Despite all the suffering going around left and right, you still have intimacy with God in Jesus Christ. There's nothing better. And we have that, brothers and sisters. We have that. Aren't you thankful? Um, I remember when I first came to this reality, I was doing some church planting in Baltimore City. Baltimore's a tough city. You know, if you watch The Wire, that's what it really is like. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> oh, man, that was tough. Um, and I would want to get away sometimes, and I would go to a museum. Who enjoys museums when it's time to go away? Yeah, okay. And I went to an art museum called the Walters Art Museum. And I went there by myself just to get away, and I, and I went and found this, uh, this painting um, called The Christian Martyr's Last Prayer by Jean-Léon Jérôme in 1863. It was made. And I, and I got to the painting, and I froze, right? And the people behind me were like, come on, bro, move on. And I was like, I couldn't move because the painting was riveting. And, I, and I'll describe to you a little bit about the, the context of the painting. In 64 AD, there was a great fire in Rome. And the fire burned about 70% of the city. Now, it's rumored um, that the emperor um, Nero was, in, was the emperor at the time. It's, it's rumored that Nero had people burn the city themselves so that he could do his, re, his rebuilding city campaign. Now, Nero took this as an opportunity to blame the burning of the city on a religious group called the Christians. And at that point, the church suffered intense persecution. It was in that year in 64 that Paul was beheaded. It's also in that year that Peter was crucified upside down. It was also in that, that time that kicked off 
this new practice where you would take Christians and you would put them in the Colosseum to face ferocious lions for show. And in this particular painting, you can see um, a lion emerging from, I guess there's a cellar on the ground there, and the lion's coming up. And the, and the lion's like in the Colosseum like this, and people are shouting and yelling, and the lion's hungry and looking around. And there in the corner on the right are a group of Christians. And the lion's approaching them. And what are these Christians doing? They're having a worship and prayer service right in the middle of the Colosseum as the lions are approaching. And one of these, a leader, is looking up to the heavens. And uh, the Philippians was written around 61, so Paul's sayings were probably widely distributed. I imagine what was this one individual saying as he's looking to the heavens at the same time death is approaching, the lion is approaching. Perhaps what he was saying is, I have lived life because I'm in Christ. There is nothing left. There's nothing better. I'm in Christ. So I can face whatever comes. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Now that we understand that context, let's look at the verse. Because everything just comes, just, just makes sense. Look at verse 28. Paul says, In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you, and that too from God. Here Paul is encouraging Christians of their attitudes in the midst of suffering. I love how the Bible is the best discipleship book, isn't it? Notice how Paul says, not if sufferings comes. Paul says, when suffering comes. Christians, suffering is part of your discipleship. I had to learn this, and I'm still learning it. Suffering is part of discipleship. Paul says that when suffering comes, look what he says. Do not be alarmed. Don't be frightened when suffering comes. Don't be startled when suffering comes. Instead, demonstrate the faith that you have even in the midst of suffering. Suffering, You have eternal relationship. You have an eternal relationship of peace, joy, and delight with God in and through Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that even when suffering comes, you still have peace, joy, and delight with God in Christ in spite of suffering. Uh, look with me at verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer in his sake. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe, but to suffer. Brothers and sisters, Paul is telling believers in Philippi that it has been granted or gifted to us. It's a gift. The gift is not only belief in Christ, but the gift is also suffering for Christ. Now, here's my question for you. How is suffering a gift? How is suffering a gift? Thank you, I guess. Thanks for this gift of suffering. How is suffering a gift? Listen to me carefully. It is in suffering for Christ that we discover we have supernatural joy, a joy that is beyond human comprehension. 
It is when you go through intense suffering and you still feel and sense the joy and delight and connection that we have in God, in Christ, which is beyond human comprehension, that's when we know that something supernatural is going on in our life. And that is only really discovered in suffering. Look at verse 30 with me. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul says that we experience the same conflict. The same conflict. What is this same conflict that we share with the Apostle Paul? Anybody curious? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I forgot to do that first service, so I'm glad I got it this time. <laughs> Oh, man. Um, you see, Paul is using his life as an object lesson, as a sermon. Paul is in a Roman prison. He's been in there for two years. And Paul is living in incredible unpredictability. Every day he's in the prison and he's waking up for two years. He doesn't know if that's going to be his last day. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine going to bed and waking up not knowing if this is the day you're going to get beheaded? For two years. Some of you know that type of uncertainty. Maybe it's a recent diagnosis. Maybe it's a financial situation. Maybe it's a relationship situation. You're living in uncertainty. And yet, even in that uncertainty in Philippians chapter 4, what does Paul say? 4, five, four, four, four to 5. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Again, Paul is in uncertainty. How is he able to say, rejoice in the Lord always? The answer is verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Emmanuel. Whether Paul was thinking the Lord is near, like this is the day, this is my, in my lifetime, Jesus is going to return, Emmanuel. Whether Paul is thinking that tomorrow's the day that they're going to bring me and behead me, Emmanuel. Or my personal favorite, whether Paul is thinking that because of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, who is here, Christ is with us, Emmanuel. In our suffering, Emmanuel. And therefore, we can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. Love you guys. I want to invite Pastor Steve to come up and give us the conclusion. Thank you, Roger. <laughs> now you see why I made him do it, don't you? We have a little phrase, burn out the front three rows. I got the front three. He knocked the balcony out. <laughs> Good job. Okay. I'm going to give you some words as you look at my beautiful briefcase. Like my well-worn briefcase, we were made to be part of a greater story and we were designed to carry precious treasures 
So brothers and sisters in Christ, will you join me and join Roger in doing what you were designed to do, carry the treasure of the gospel of Christ and be completely available to your owner for the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the beautiful body of Christ because you dwell in it. Thank you for this church family and their love for your word. And Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would weave into the fabric of this church family each of our lives to be committed to the gospel-centered community of a local church, to feed conviction that we're part of a greater story, it's your story, and to taste courage because we're in fellowship with Christ. And we pray this in his name, amen.